We are continuing our study of the elements of gathered worship. Again, you have two handouts in your worship guide. You'll want the one that says celebrating baptism and Lord's Supper at the, at the top of it. We are actually temporarily concluding our list of elements of gathered worship this morning. I say temporarily because, remember, we've skipped singing because we're going to come back to that in the fall. But so far, we've talked about opening and closing, and then we've talked about all the different ways in which we read the Bible in our services, all the different ways in which we pray, all the different ways in which we give. Last Sunday, all the different ways in which we instruct. And if you missed any of those messages, please do go back and watch or listen to them. Um, these are such foundational things for our church family. So this morning we finish up the elements of gathered worship by talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then we still have a few Sundays left in this sermon, so we'll talk about some other aspects of gathered worship. <laughs> baptism and the Lord's Supper are often called the ordinances, meaning ordained by Jesus for us, commanded by Jesus for us to do. These are uh, of the elements of the Lord's Supper. These are especially tangible. They involve water and bread and juice and actions of immersing and eating and, and drinking. So today we want to consider how baptism and the Lord's Supper are essential elements of the gathered worship of the church. And the goal is to elevate our understanding of both of these things. They are, of course, very familiar to all of us. But to, to take our understanding, refresh it, renew it, so that we can ever more, hold, more wholeheartedly participate in them as, as worship. Both Baptism and the Lord's Supper are a beautiful burst of worship. It's extremely difficult in 45 minutes to even summarize all the ways in which these two things are worship because it's like a diamond sparkling with all of these facets to the glory of God. Um, and so if we understand them rightly, baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are some of the highlights of our gathered worship. So um, I pray that God will stir up our hearts to see those things as we, we talk about it this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us. These are not informational meetings. We are talking about the living worship of the living God by the living people who were once dead. And so it is our hope that you have given us spiritual life and that the Spirit is here with the living word and that through those things, you might work in our hearts in such a way that you revive our joy in the worship of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would do these things for your glory, by the Spirit, through Jesus. Amen. All right, let's begin with baptism as, as an expression of gathered worship. Now, technically, we don't do baptism here in our service when we gather, in our main service. Um, and that's mostly because there is no baptistry in here and not really any safe way to f have a few hundred gallons of water in this room. For one thing, if we were happen, happen to spill a few hundred gallons, gallons of water in this room, it goes right under that wall and into the next unit, as we found out when they spilled water and it came right under all our wall and into our unit. And we did once set up a baptism, a baptistry in here, over here, and it was not a good thing. So, uh, if the Lord allowed us to have an auditorium with a baptistry built in someday, we would love that. 
we do try to do our baptisms right after our service. And in reality, that is part of our gathered worship. I hope that one thing that has become very clear to us is that not all of the essentials of gathered worship end when I say amen. There's stuff that we continue to do that are still essential parts of our, of our gathering. So our gathering continues as we go outside for the baptism. Then there are also some occasions when we do baptisms in other places. And one of the major reasons why we do that sometimes is because of the gospel opportunity. Because sometimes there are non-Christian friends or family who won't come to church, but they will come to a baptism. And that allows the person being baptized to publicly confess Christ in front of them. And so we sometimes move a baptism uh, for that purpose. So sometimes we do baptisms elsewhere. And the story of the Ethiopian eunuch on the road in the middle of nowhere to Africa getting baptized shows us that there are special circumstances for baptism sometimes. Uh, but the normal pattern is that baptism is part of the gathered worship of the local church. So just briefly, how is baptism worship? First of all, the one being baptized worships by his public confession. Baptism is public confession of our dependence upon Christ as our Savior, and that means it is worship. The one being baptized is saying, this Jesus died and rose again for me. This Jesus is so precious that I love him and want to live for him and serve him. This Jesus is important enough that I'm willing to be put on the spot and get soaked up here in front of all of you for his sake. It is meant to be a, a public confession <laughs> of our faith in Jesus. So all of those things, all of those expressions of the heart are worship. Secondly, the one being baptized worships by his symbolism of union with the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, Christians have some differences of opinion about the best way to baptize, the best mode of baptism. But in all of those cases, the physical action that they're doing with the water is symbolizing some aspect of salvation. And so as a church that baptizes by immersion, we are picturing union with Christ in his death and resurrection through that immersion into water. Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Galatians 3 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I was thinking back this week to the, because I remember so vividly exactly where I was sitting with my dad in the basement of our house in Salt Lake City when I was getting ready to be baptized. And my dad taking his little gold ink pen out of his pocket and unscrewing it and taking out the pen insert so that he could then put it back in and screw it shut and explain to me how we are in Christ and united with Christ. His death is applied to us. His life is applied to us. And we symbolize those realities through immersion. And when we do that, it is a beautiful expression of worship because we are expressing union with Christ. So if you have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus as your Savior and King, but you have not yet been baptized as a believer, I just encourage you to not delay, but to very soon worship Christ in this way. But it's not only the person getting baptized who is worshiping. As the gathered church, baptism is an opportunity for us to worship as well. The gathered church worships by obeying Jesus' command to go and make disciples, baptizing them. 
which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. There's a sense in which only God can make a disciple. We can do the discipling things, and he uses us as his instruments. The fruit is up to him. But because we are his instruments, we worship him by doing the things that he uses to make disciples. That is obedience to him. And so when we get to baptize someone, it means we've been seeking to obey his command to make disciples and baptize them. And as we baptize that person, we are committing ourselves as a church family to continue the disciple-making process with them. It's not, whew, we're done with you. <laughs> it's the beginning, right? Just like a couple when that baby is finally born after that long pregnancy. They don't say, whew, we're done with you, Lord willing. But this is just the beginning. And so a person is not baptized in isolation— that's why the Ethiopian eunuch is, is an exception to the rule. A person is baptized in the context of the gathered church who will then help them grow in Christ. We are worshiping when we seek to be part of God's work of making disciples, and that includes baptizing them. But then also, the gathered church worships by celebrating God's salvation of the one being baptized. So in your Bible, Luke 15 and verse 10 Begin in verse 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Pause there at verse 9. Do you see the, the gathered picture there? She's not just celebrating by herself. She's gathering her friends and neighbors. Rejoice with me. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. At a baptism, we gather to join the angels in praising God that he has saved another sinner. When you witness a baptism and your heart leaps for joy, that is a shout of worship coming from your heart to God. And when that person comes back up out of the water and we applaud or amen or cheer, whatever we do, we are joining heaven's celebration. It is worship. And so when we put together those things, we can see that baptism is like a, can be like a burst of worship in several ways. When from the heart of the person being baptized and from the hearts of those in the gathered church comes this joy in the Lord and in his salvation. Now, let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Because if baptism is a multifaceted expression of worship, the same is true of the Lord's Supper. And I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper is more important, but the Lord's Supper may have even more facets to it as an expression of worship. So we're going to work through this passage in Luke 22 just kind of slowly and let it form our outline for us. Um, there's so much that can be said about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to let this passage kind of direct what we say. And you can see that the outline is formed around the sentence, the Lord's Supper is worship when, okay? So let's start into our passage and then we'll get our first point. Verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called the Passover. Verse 7, 
Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So we'll pause there for now. Jesus, the holy son of God, earnestly desired to eat with them. Now, eating together in that ancient culture, and to some degree still today, was a symbol of acceptance, of friendship. And so it is a marvel that God desires to fellowship with his people and that he pictures that like sharing a meal together. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are not supposed to just see ourselves as taking these little symbols in a church service but to see ourselves in fellowship together through Christ as if sharing a meal with him. So first of all, the Lord's Supper is worship when we celebrate our fellowship with God through Christ. All the way back when God made the covenant with Israel at Sinai, there is this startling moment when the leaders of Israel had a meal in the presence of God to celebrate that covenant. The text even notes how startling it is that they didn't die eating this meal in the presence of God. And that, Exodus chapter 24, begins a Bible theme of fellowship with God through a meal. So, for example, think of the story of Ruth. Ruth was a woman on the margins of society in a very vulnerable position, and yet God sent this Boaz to be like a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and how he treated her. And Boaz kept unexpectedly providing for her and protecting her. But the really shocking moment is when he welcomed her at a meal. Ruth 2 verse 14, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Now, that may not sound too extraordinary in our day when it's not uncommon for people of different social classes to eat together. It's not uncommon for men and women to eat together and so forth. It was astonishing in that day for Boaz to do that. It was an extraordinary picture of what Jesus would do for us, welcoming us at his table. Now, you probably know that in the end, Ruth and Boaz married, and their great-grandson would be the Jewish king, David. Now, the previous king, Saul, had an obsession with killing David and wasted most of his reign trying to do that. One of the ways in which God protected David was through his friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. In the end, Saul and Jonathan both died in a battle against the Philistines, but David had promised that he would show loyal love to Jonathan's household. So once he became king, 
he asked if there were any uh, descendants of Jonathan left. And they told him that there was this one, Mephibosheth, uh, there you go, a cripple. Can I not say that again in this sermon? Uh, and so David called him to the palace. Now, Mephibosheth comes limping in or maybe is carried in to see David. And what does he think is coming? It's simple. It's off with your head. That's what kings do to the relatives of the former king who tried to kill them for their whole reign. You kill his relatives. And David's first words to him were, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and you shall eat at my table always. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And that is what God offers to every sinner through Christ. The bread of life at no cost to us. And not only that, but to come to the king's table and a fellowship with God himself through Christ. It is so right when we sing, once your enemies, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are singing that through the action of the Lord's Supper. We are worshiping. Now, that is not all, for we also worship through the Lord's Supper when we anticipate the eternal feast with God. So first of all, through the Lord's Supper, we are picturing and celebrating our current fellowship with God through Christ, but we are also looking forward to the eternal feast with God. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. through the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. So in your Bible, look back at Luke twenty two, fifteen. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. If you look on your handout, Matthew 26 and verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. And notice the next two words. What are they? With you in my Father's kingdom. In Luke 22, look down at Luke 22, verse 30 that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, reclining the table means, uh, you know, relaxing at that low Middle Eastern table for a meal. And how about on your handout again, Luke 12, verse 37. Well, Luke, Luke 13, 29 People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. I mean, it's true that he's using an illustration from culture, but he chose that illustration to tell his disciples what it would be like when he came again. It would be like a master 
dressing himself to be the table waiter and serving his servants at a meal. That's how he pictures the return of Christ. And then what do we read in Revelation 19, verse 9? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I love this passage from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. When you take the Lord's Supper, you can worship by saying, God has brought me into his family, God has brought me to his table, and I will feast there forever in the house of the Lord. All right, let's keep going in Luke 22, verse 17. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. So let her see, we worship through the Lord's Supper when we give thanks to God for Christ. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. The Lord's Supper is a thank you. And so it's sometimes called the Eucharist, which comes from this word for giving thanks. Jesus gave thanks for the bread and cup. We give thanks for Jesus, who is the bread and cup for us. So you worship through the Lord's Supper when your heart expresses thankfulness to God for Jesus Christ. And that connects directly to the next point, when we rejoice in the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for us. In our first two points, we talked about fellowship with God through Christ. We talked about feasting at his table. But how can sinners come to the table of a holy God? And it's only through the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. In Matthew's account of the Last Supper, we read that as Jesus took the cup, he said that his blood would be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. John said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here in Luke 22, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. So, so the Lord's Supper is built upon the symbolism of the bread and cup picturing the body and blood of Christ. It pictures the sacrificial death of Christ for us. It is unfortunately easy to neglect the actual body and blood of Christ sacrificed for, sacrifice for us. Um, we can neglect them simply because they're uncomfortable, and it's easier to not think about it or talk about it. Some churches neglect them doctrinally. They reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for the wrath of God. They reject propitiation and instead say that, you know, Jesus was just a, an example of love for all of us. Some churches 
reject it pragmatically because they don't want to make people uncomfortable in their services, so they don't want to talk about things like the blood of Christ. But the regular practice of the Lord's Supper brings the body and blood of Christ to our attention again and again. 1 Corinthians 11, again, tells us to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And not just his death in general, but his death specifically for us. So on your handout, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In the Lord's Supper, you are picturing that union with Christ. Remember the pen? His Christ's death is applied to you because you have brought, been brought into union with Christ. His death is counted as your death. In baptism, we picture our union with Christ by immersion. In the Lord's Supper, we picture our union with Christ by eating, by taking that food into ourselves. Over in John 6, Jesus said in shocking language, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What he's talking about is the necessity of being united with Christ. As the rest of John 6 shows, we feed on Christ's body and blood by faith in the words of eternal life and are therefore united with Christ. It's not, it is not at all that we come to the Lord's Supper and we literally re-sacrifice Christ and eat his flesh and blood. It is not that at all. It is that in the Lord's Supper, we rejoice that Christ literally died in our place and that his death is directly applied to us as if it was our death so that our sin is completely paid for on the cross. Christ is, after all, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. When Israel was in Egypt, it was the death of the Passover lamb that rescued them from God's death angel that was bringing that plague of death. And it was the Passover lamb that then, through that rescue, so that they didn't die that night, then resulted in their freedom, their exodus from slavery in Egypt. And there are lots of Passover connections in the New Testament, including Paul calling Jesus our Passover lamb because the Passover pointed ahead to Christ who dies in our place to rescue us from the deadly judgment of God. So now that Christ has fulfilled the Passover, now that the point of the Passover has come, we remember his sacrifice through this bread and cup that remind us of his death for us. And that is worship, to remember his body and blood broken and shed for us. Now back to verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So letter E, we also worship in the Lord's Supper when we are obeying Christ's command. Christ said, do this in obedience, his worship. And then the next phrase in verse 19 is the next point. He says, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So letter F, we worship through the Lord's Supper when we are remembering and proclaiming the death of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you take that bread and you take that cup and you say, in your heart, yes, Christ died for me. And then you eat with your brothers and sisters to say out loud, 
through the action, yes, Christ died for me. You see that twofold worship? It begins with the worship in my heart. Yes, Christ died for me. And then is the public action that says, yes, Christ died for me. And therefore, we remember and proclaim his death until he comes. Okay. We're going through a lot of truths here, right? And that might feel a little bit overwhelming because there is so much packed into this passage. There's so much packed into the Lord's Supper. But remember why we're talking about it this morning. We're not trying to do an in-depth study of the Lord's Supper. We're trying to see the many facets of worship in the Lord's Supper. We're praying that God would renew our joy in this multifaceted expression of worship. And by the way, from what we've talked about even just so far, you can see why not all Lord's Supper services are going to be just like each other. There are so many facets to the Lord's Supper that it is right for one Lord's Supper service to focus in this direction and one to focus in this direction and one to pull out all these different aspects of, of the death of Christ for us and our union with Christ. So you can expect a lot of variety around those basic elements of bread and cup in the Lord's Supper. Now let's continue into verse 20. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the cup has a twofold significance. The cup represents Jesus' suffering, especially then the shedding of his blood. And through this comes the new covenant between God and those whom he saves. God guarantees salvation to all of those who belong to him. He makes a covenant of love, a covenant of forgiveness, a covenant of adoption, and the blood of Christ seals that covenant. And so we worship through the Lord's Supper when, letter G, when we are resting in the certainty of salvation in his blood. When you hold that cup and say in your heart, Christ's death means that my salvation is certain, that the covenant is sealed in the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. That then is worship. And now we come to the final section of, of this portion of Luke 22. And we're going to read verses 21 through 23. And here Jesus' words become even more sober. Verse 21 but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Isn't it interesting that that seems to just come right after bread and cup and but? But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So this reminds us that we worship the Lord through the Lord's Supper when we partake as believers. One of those at the table was not a disciple of Christ in his heart. Jesus was just a means for Judas to try to get rich. So he should not have taken that Passover meal with them especially as Jesus was telling them the fulfillment, the, the fulfillment of it, the meaning of it. The things we're talking about this morning, they weren't true of Judas's heart. 
And so, again, if you look at the way our outline reads this morning, every point says the Lord's Supper is worship when, when these things are true. Worship must come from the heart, not just the motions or the routines. And so the Lord's Supper is only for believers. It is not for the curious. It is not for those who like to add lots of religions to their life in case it might help out. It is not something that makes you a Christian. It is an act of worship for sincere believers in Christ. And that is one of the reasons why it's appropriate to examine ourselves at the Lord's Supper. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judas was eating and drinking judgment on himself because he was playing along with his Passover feast when he truly had no interest in Christ as Savior. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warned them about trying to partake of the Lord's table when they were also partaking at the table of demons. And that probably means Paul connects idols with demons, and so it probably means they were going to idol feasts, parties in celebration of idols. And Paul's saying, you can't go to parties in celebration of idols and then come take the Lord's Supper with your church family. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve, either idols or Christ. The Lord's Supper is like another moment to say, choose this day whom you will serve, either idols or Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is an appropriate time to examine our hearts in relation to Christ. Now, Sometimes Christians get hung up on this point. Genuine believers get hung up on this point because they think that they have to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. They think that they need to examine their own worthiness to take the Lord's Supper. And if they don't feel worthy enough, the doubts can spiral. But is that what 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven says? It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. He is not saying that you must make yourself worthy. We are worthy because of Christ alone, always and completely. He's referring to taking it in an unworthy manner like Judas did. So it is appropriate for us when we come to the Lord's Supper to ask ourselves, is my heart far from these things? Am I just playing a game here? Or can the Lord's Supper be a genuine expression of my need for Christ and my desire for Christ? You're not evaluating the, the current strength of your Christianity. You're evaluating whether or not you can take these things sincerely because you want Jesus. You love Jesus. So again, the point is not that you must be super spiritual to take the Lord's Supper. The point is that only genuine believers should take the Lord's Supper as an expression of their sincere faith in Christ. And there does seem to be an actual warning of God that there is danger, there is judgment, there is a heaping judgment upon yourself when a person knowingly plays along with the Lord's Supper when they do not need Christ.
It is a dangerous thing to do. Finally, we worship through the Lord's Supper when we celebrate it in loving fellowship with the body of Christ. These disciples were eating together with Christ on that night. And when he told them, do this in remembrance of me, he meant that they would gather and do it together again and again. So the Lord's Supper is a family meal in the house of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this is where the name communion comes from, right? We are in communion, in fellowship with one another, because we are in union with Christ. We all have spiritual life through the one bread of life, Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is an expression of unity as we all partake together of these symbols of Christ. But in Corinth, it wasn't like that. There were divisions among them. One went hungry, didn't have enough food, while one had too much and got drunk. They needed to wait for one another. They needed to eat together. And so when Paul told them to examine themselves and discern the body, he might have been talking about their relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Now, this gets really interesting when we realize that when the New Testament talks about the Lord's Supper, it seems to consistently talk about it in the context of eating a meal together. Here in Luke 22, what were they doing? Eating a meal together. In 1 Corinthians 11, it was obviously in the context of a meal because some people were going away full and some people were going away hungry. None of you go away full from our Lord's suppers. Some of the people were going away drunk. None of you go away drunk from our Lord's suppers. So it was clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, a meal. At the very earliest stage of the church in Acts chapter 2, it says that they were breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. So at that point, before the church had hardly been organized at all, they were probably eating group meals together in homes and celebrating Christ in that way. As you get later in the book of Acts, it looks like they were gathering a little bit more formally on the first day of the week, and yet it still sounds like it was a meal in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 20, because they finally, this is when Paul preaches all night, and they finally stop in the middle of the night, and they actually go and eat, and then they come back and keep, keep talking. So it seems then that there are actually two aspects to the Lord's Supper. One aspect is eating a meal together, and the other is taking these particular symbols of the bread and the cup. Oh, I'm not saying that any time Christians eat together, it is the Lord's Supper. There needs to be an intention to be gathering as a church family for the purpose of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ with the bread and the cup. And Bible scholars don't, they, and historians, they just don't know how exactly the fellowship meal and the symbols of the bread and cup integrated together in the early church. And what the early church did is not authoritative for us anyways. But I'm just saying, historians don't even know very well until a ways after the New Testament was finished exactly how they fit those things together. So the Bible doesn't tell us how we have to fit those things together today. Different churches can do it in different ways. The way we approach it as a church is by having both a Lord's Supper portion of our service in which we take those symbols together, and we also have a monthly fellowship meal together. 
unfortunately named potluck because that word communicates you need to bring something or we'll be hungry. But can we just stop calling it a potluck? Can we call it a fellowship meal instead and still understand that we all need to bring food, though it's a fellowship meal? And probably starting with first Sunday of October, as often as it's possible, we will try to make sure that the Lord's Supper portion of our service and our fellowship meals happen on the same Sunday because they actually are two aspects of the same thing. So maybe you've never thought of those fellowship meals as being an aspect of the Lord's Supper, but they actually are. Let me show you a couple quotes from, from Brian Chapel. If we can go to, there we go. In the Bible, the Lord's Supper was practiced of a, as a means of uniting the church around a common meal. People of different races, regions, and pasts came together to share their foods, funds, prayers, and homes. They had to work past their differences, prejudices, and antipathies to engage in eating, conversation, and worship in the same space. Eat, like you said earlier, eating together means something. It always has. And eating together is very relational, partly because it takes time. And it takes some of you more time than others. And it puts you on the spot to wait for other people to finally finish. Or to talk while you're eating and get to know each other. We have differing food preferences and allergies and tastes. Some of us might struggle with something as small as the sound of other people eating. Not naming names, but here I am. It would just be easier to go home. My food, my place, my way, and I don't have to listen to you chew. But that is not the way of the cross. It is not. It would not be right for me to go hide in my hole, though I would like to. Now, Brian Chapel continues the same quote by saying, how much of the meal was simply socializing and how much was distinguished as symbolic ritual, we don't really know. That's what I was saying earlier. We don't know how they combined bread and cup, do this like Jesus said, together with fellowship meal. What is plain is that the meal was a meal and not just a ceremony, or at least the ceremony was in the context of a, of a meal. Being willing uh, so, uh, let's go to the next quote. He finishes, this is the same quote. He, this is just the last sentence of it. What kept communion from being routine was the fact that it was part of living the gospel. Okay, here's what he's saying. He's saying that a fellowship meal is a time when the gospel rubber meets the road. Because for you to sit down the row from someone here and take that little piece of bread and cup together is not that difficult. The question is, will you then go sit down at a table and actually eat with the same people with whom you just took that bread and that cup? And will you talk? And will you bear one another's burdens? And will you wait for one another to eat? And will you deal with one another's food preferences and allergies and weird hang-ups and things? It is when 
we find out, it's one of the times when we find out whether we love the body of Christ in theory or in actual practice. Richard Phillips in uh, Give Praise to God writes, Frequent partaking of the Lord's Supper is a great aid in promoting fervent spiritual brotherhood. All right, so let's say that we're out back eating together and someone walks through like they do sometimes and they they ask one of you, why do you guys eat together like this? What could you say? You could say, free food. Why not? You could say, because these are the coolest people I've ever met. You could say, have you ever had Dave Dunker's mini cinnamon rolls? (laughs) But it would be best to say, we do this because of Jesus. This is like a family meal celebrating that God gave all of us the bread of life in Jesus and brought us into his family and his table. So we're eating together actually as worship of Jesus. And even to say that would be worship. It would show that your heart gets excited about the multifaceted meaning of the Lord's Supper. You can drag yourself through a ritual that you've been through a few hundred times and you don't care about, or you can worship. And it can just burst with worship to the glory of Jesus in all these different ways in the Lord's Supper. So what we've learned today is that when someone is getting baptized— The overall message we are proclaiming together is that Jesus is amazing. And when we eat the Lord's Supper, what we are proclaiming together is that Jesus is amazing. We've listed nine different ways in which the Lord's Supper is worship after we listed several different ways in which baptism is worship. So I hope it's clear that these things are not some sort of mindless routine. They are like fireworks of worship from our hearts. They can just burst with meaning when our hearts are engaged with them. So let it be so. Over the next few weeks as a church, as we have a baptism, as we have the Lord's Supper in our service, as we have a fellowship meal, seek to engage wholeheartedly in the beautiful worship of these things. And as we do these things over and over again in the future, as Jesus told us to, each time we have the opportunity to say, I know why we're doing this. Go ahead, ask me. (laughs) If someone were to come up to us while we have that little bread and that little cup and say, why are you doing this? Or come up to us as we eat that meal and say, why are you doing this? Or come up to us as we stand there shivering in our towel after getting baptized and say, why are you doing this? It is worship when we can say, I know why, let me tell you. And it starts with Jesus, who is amazing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. You are the only one who knows every burden pressing upon the hearts of these people. 
every temptation, every sorrow, every doubt that weighs upon their hearts today. And I pray that by your grace, you might draw us all closer to Jesus to see in him the hope for now and forever. And I pray that you might refresh in the hearts of your people their understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper as a beautiful way to say that Jesus is amazing. So bring that joy in fresh ways to them. And help us in the, in the weeks ahead as we do these things. May they come from our hearts by your grace and your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.